Verbally Effective with Ina Esco is an interview-style podcast that intersects art, culture, politics, and entertainment with a Memphis focus. With producer Sanaa Marie. Each week, I'm joined by a featured guest with roots in Memphis. Verbally Effective delves into each guest's personal journey to uncover the incredible stories fueling their purpose the highs and lows of their pursuits, and how through their passion, they are moving the culture forward. Be sure to follow Verbally Effective and Ina Esco on Instagram. Also, download the Verbally Effective podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Don't forget to check out the website and submit to be a guest at verballyeffective.com. This is I Make Mad Beats, CEO and founder of Unapologetic. I'm here with Ina Esco on the Verbally Effective Podcast. What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Izzy Moore, soulful singer and conscious hip-hop artist. And I'm here at the Verbally Effective Podcast, hanging out with the one and only, my girl, Ina Esco. Ever since he launched the Reeves Law Firm, PLLC, in 2011, Henry E. Reeves III has operated it under a guiding precept. We want to be loved by our clients, we want to be respected by our peers, and we want to be feared by our opposition. Reeves III had graduated from Indiana University School of Law two years earlier and landed his first job in a Memphis firm that defended insurance companies and corporations. He quickly came to realize that wasn't what he wanted to do with his life. So he left that firm intent on helping people who've been hurt and he has been putting the knowledge that he attained during his stint with the defense firm to good advantage ever since. Verbally Effective, your double E, Ina Esco here. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the Verbally Effective podcast. Make sure you guys check out the website, verballyeffective.com. Hit the subscribe button, review the podcast. You know, we were invited to South by Southwest, but COVID hit and messed up our plans, but it ain't stopping nothing today because I have a young man with me. I've been wanting to get on the pod for a long time. You have seen him on television talking about personal injuries. He wants your business. He is like one of the only African-American men in the game that you see on TV in Memphis marketing his firm, but he has a story to tell me today, Mr. Henry Reeves III, the owner of Reeves Law Firm. How are you, Henry? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Man, thank you so much for having me this morning, too. Excited to be on your show. Thank you for joining me today. Is this your first podcast? Um, I I've done a couple other I've done a couple other podcasts, but but this ain't ain't none like this one though. None Ah! like this one. Exactly, exactly. Now, how are you faring in this snow? You know, we snowed in. I'm pretty sure you're at the house or at your law firm. Uh, I'm not sure. Oh yeah, I'm at I'm at the house. I, I was like a crazy. I went out there trying to get to work yesterday. I, I went to work and I end up um, you know, coming back at around 11:30. I came back home and it was so bad. Like I did like a 360 on meal brands. Luckily, no. no one was there. Oh yeah, complete oh, donut. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, Memphis so, not used to this at all. Nah, nah, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's, it's not so much the snow as it is the ice. That ice, something serious. So, oh yeah, don't be like me. Y'all stay home. I don't want y'all to be my client that bad. Now, stay home. Stay up in the house. Look, I was about to increase your clientele, Mr. Hey, 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 I'd rather rather you folks stay at the house. Keep your tail in the house right now. Right. Y'all stay at the house. But we about to get started with Henry's journey. What part of Memphis are you from, Henry? Uh, Actually, I'm from uh, Mississippi. I'm from uh, Benton County, Mississippi. Uh, It's a, a neighborhood called the Dead End. I was born here in Memphis. And so, uh, you know, growing up, uh, I had lots of family and stuff in Memphis. We're probably about uh, 45 minutes outside of Memphis. So, you know, when we went to the mall, like Southland was our, Southland was the mall that we went to. Um, And my grandmother, a lot of her sisters, and and she has sisters who lived in Boxtown and, you know, our family in Orange Mound and and Westwood. So I was, you know, pretty much back and forth. Okay. And, and did you eventually move to Memphis? 
Yeah, I moved to Memphis back in, uh, I moved to Memphis. I've been living in that Whitehaven community probably for about 12, 13 years. Like this is, this is, this is where I've been situated, uh, you know, uh, Whitehaven, Westwood area. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, how was it growing up in Memphis with your family in Benton County, Mississippi? Mm -hmm. Like describe to me your family unit growing up. Yeah. Well, my family unit, I'm, you know, kind of like you, how we were talking, my father was in the military, you know, as well. So we end up, uh, you know, we end up getting deployed, uh, quite a bit. Um, so as I said, we, you know, born in Memphis, we end up going to the first base that I can remember. It was like East Palo Alto. And so it's in like, um, Oakland. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a naval, it was a naval base out there. Uh, spent some time out there and then to Japan, then to San Diego. And it's a situation of like, uh, every now and then I'll come back for a summer or a couple grades. I will come back for a year and I would stay with my grandmother back and forth. Um, okay. I mean, it was, it was a, uh, uh, you know, the time I, I, I spent here, I think it was, you know, it was great for me. It was a lot of family and stuff like that. However, you know, there was definitely some adversity. I think that everyone, anyone who grew up kind of in our time, uh, you know, was in the midst of the, the crack epidemic and whatnot. And so like my neighborhood on the dead end is like literally I could go to every single house and there's someone there either, you know, smoke crack or they sold crack. Yeah. And so, and so that, it, it weighed so heavily. I, I got older, you know, before I realized that like, okay, well, yeah, you grew up in the middle of a crack epidemic. Like a lot of that stuff that you, you know, that you saw and that you experienced, like it, it wasn't normal. However, uh, you know, to a lot of people situated such as myself, to a lot of people in Memphis and, and around here and in Mississippi and stuff, like that was extremely normal. Uh, my story, uh, you know, people talk about my story, but my story is not unique because the majority of the people who I know, uh, you know, they've had uh, similar stories or worse. Right. Right. It was systematic, right? Yeah, I, 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 I definitely feel it was a systematic. It was it was kind of a, uh, a perfect it was a perfect storm, um, you know, kind of uh, when, when crack was introduced uh, in these in these neighborhoods, there was already this economic imbalance there. So, bam. So so it hit kind of on both sides. It's the uh, people who are, uh, you know, they're oppressed, they're fighting discrimination and stuff like that. So they have opportunity to get away by getting high. But then on the other end, uh, people look at this as like, man, here goes the economic, here goes us a, here goes us a rope, a economic. I can sell dope and I can feed my family. Wow. You know, I can, uh, you know, one of my uncles, um, you know, it's, it's the, the thing growing up that was kind of unique for me, that kind of benefits me to this day, is the fact that I was kind of exposed to both sides, you know, of the game. So it's like my father who was in the military, I'm talking about absolute perfect father, leave it to Beaver, uh, you know, type uh, growing up situation. So he gets, uh, you know, he got addicted to crack and stuff like that. So I kind of saw firsthand kind of the the negative aspects of, of crack and, and crack usage. And I saw like how it can destroy and, and, and dismantle the family. And it's, you know, pretty much the largest reason why I never, you know, why I never sold crack or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, it was like people who I love, who I had like my uncles and stuff like that who were selling crack. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's very easy to be the uh, child of a, uh, you know, of, of, of someone who's addicted to demonize, you know, you know, the, the drug dealers and stuff. But I mean, me being related to both sides, I kind of, you know, got to see, you know, both sides and just understand that the different uh, intricacies. And so the mass incarceration the second wave that it came after the crack epidemic you know it was just as it was you know it was just as damaging you know to the black community so it's like everyone who i grew up with like all my cousins and, and you know my friends and stuff like that you know they were all in the penitentiary you know they were doing you know big bids and stuff like that and uh, a lot of them you know they were labeled with this felonies um you know before they even started like I'm 40 years old now and, you know, I got family who, who've been felons for, you know, 17, 18, 19, you know, 20 years before they, before they got a chance to go to college and, and get a career. It's like, it was, 
you know, kind of predestined. Like this is the lane that you're gonna have to take now um, because you're a felon. Amazing, wow. So you've seen both sides of this crack game, this epidemic, uh, the mass incarceration side, you've seen it all, Henry. And um, I know at one point you made the decision to, I guess, follow in the footsteps of some of your family members and go to the military. Why did you make that choice? And tell me about your time in the military. Uh, it was my, it was my uh, father. And I, I say uh, for me, you know, I had, uh, I had an absolute, like the perfect father. So like Johnny Taylor, he had a song, he had a song, Good Love. And, and then mm -hmm. he said, I don't, you know, I don't claim to be perfect, but I'm perfect for you. And so like my situation is, uh, you know, my father may not have been perfect, but he was perfect for what I had to, you know, be, what, what I had to become and stuff like that. Um, he had went to the military and he told me I was maybe 17 in the 11th grade. And he was like, man, son, I don't think that you had a, the right self-discipline to go right to college right now. Boop, he had the recruiter. The next day, he told me he told me I was going to the military, and uh, he told the you. recruiter kind of yeah, recruiter came the next day, <laughs> and, and shoot, he sold me. Recruiter had the recruiter was good. That, that turned out to be uh, arguably, you know, maybe the best decision of of my life because um, I was able to get out of this. I was able to remove myself from the environment, and then I I, I was around uh, you know a whole bunch of. Uh, a whole bunch of square bears, which was good for me at that time. Square bears, they got you disciplined over there in the military, then. Oh yeah, yeah, they they got me um, disciplined. Um, you know, they instilled a lot of the, the core values. You know, integrity first, excellence in all we do, service before self, and you know, you start to really see that it's it's uh, you know it, it's bigger than you. So the military, that was definitely a great thing. I got to get my associates while I was in there. I got GA, a GI um, bill, VA loan, um, you know, experience. Um, it, it was I, I thought it was a great time. For for military people, uh, when they go in at seventeen and eighteen, like and they look back at it like that's their college years, you know, basically, you know that that formative years. And I still have friends in the military that I talk to uh, to this day. Yeah. Know. Wow. Now, what did you specialize in in the military? Because I see that you're a former satellite imagery analyst. What is that, Henry? Okay. So, if you see a um, a UAV, if you see a um, aerial vehicle, a lot of times they will have a camera on them. It's like a drone and they have, uh, and they'll either, you know, be either spying or they'll be, well, mostly just spying. So I was the one who was interpreting the imagery from a picture. If there was a, a plane that took pictures from high up, or if there was a, a drone that was being remote controlled, like I would interpret the imagery. So, for instance, we did things like force protection, uh, you know, and this is declassified now because of, you know, the, the time it's been. But we did, um, uh, we created what's called force protection packages. So I could look at an installation in the Middle East and then I can identify, all right, this is a surface to air missile. This is what type of surface to air missile it is. This is how many F-15s they have. This is how many F-14s they have. This is how many tanks they have. These are the type of tanks they have. And so we would do these force assessments for, um, we would do force protection assessments for the ground forces uh, that were coming in. So they kind of knew what they were facing. Um, in addition to that, um, I did, uh, we did some targeting. Uh, so, so my job would be to put the target and then. Then hit the button, boom. I, I had to hit the button. I just had to hit the target. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an accomplice. You're an accomplice. <laughs> Yeah, I got. I, I, didn't, I ain't pull. I ain't pull. You the hit the button. <laughs> 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 wow! I'm just kidding. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, just getting that, you know, history on you exactly what you did in the military because it seems like you've been through so much. Um, so what what happened where you wanted to leave the military? Uh, I knew I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be a, uh, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I, I kind of knew that uh, when I was young in San Diego, when we were living in San Diego, I remember like seeing the lawyers. Uh, my dad took me downtown to uh, it's a movie theater down there, Horton Plaza. And I could see the lawyers like in their suits and walking with the suitcases. And to me, like that was like, man, it's like Yo Gotti. Like that was like, <laughs> like seeing like, like that kind of, amp me up and like hype me up to see that 
um, and it, and it's and it's really because like it was so rare, you know, because a lot of people in my, you know, I didn't see people on the dead end weren't like that. So so when I saw that, that was that. Um, and another thing is, I have a cousin uh, who was a uh, you know a a great attorney, uh, probably you know arguably one of the greatest uh, criminal attorneys you know out there now, um, Vandal uh, Bland. He's out of West Helena, Arkansas, and so. Um, he was he was different so everywhere everyone around me like the people who had money was like like dope boys and stuff but the dope boys they had like caprices and box shabbies and and stuff like that but my cousin Brown, he came through he had like that bubble eye lexus with like you know it was uh you know with the pearl white and the rim like he was it was a it was like this is different <laughs> like like it was on it was on a, a different level and every time he would come you know and and, and see me like he gave my grandma like a hundred dollars like every time he saw her like like he would slide he would slide her some money so um he kind of showed me man boot is possible like this is a this is an a, another route there's people in your family who are doing this so I kind of always had that in me that I want to do it and uh when I was in the military I came in enlisted. I didn't come in as an officer. So the only way that I could become a lawyer is I either had to become commissioned and go through the JAG or, or get out. And and so there was just too many, uh, you know, obstacles in becoming an attorney if I would have re-enlisted. And it was hard not to re-enlist because yeah. I, I was stationed in Omaha, Nebraska. If you think about it, I'm like 20 one twenty-two at that time and my next base that they gave me if I would have re-enlisted was gonna be Vegas mm. and they were giving me like a sixty thousand dollar re-enlistment bonus because of my career so I had to walk away from like sixty thousand Vegas at 21 22 but I'm, I'm glad I, I'm glad I did that though I know you are glad that you did that now looking back right wow yes ma'am yes ma'am Look- did you know what type of law that you wanted to practice at that moment? Or you was just getting in the game, getting in law school? Man, I, man, I, I was thinking like every, the lawyers was, so I was pretty much like dope boy lawyers. And, you know, and just like Matt Locke, I mean, I, you know, the, the vision of what I had as a lawyer was, you know, uh, you know, a lot of them representing, uh, you know, just regular uh, people for run of the mill stuff. I had absolutely no vision whatsoever of doing like personal injury right um, I, I just you know the lawyers in my neighborhood and my community my cousin and stuff that I saw like like that's the, the the type of law that I wanted that I envisioned myself doing gotcha wow now the fact of the matter is only five percent of lawyers in the United States are African-American that's a very a very low percentage and for you to enter into that field at the time that you did what type of challenges did you go through in law school and see if we if we think about like the stuff that we went through you know just being you know black and growing up and going through it it's like man I literally had you know I was like literally involved in conflict and operation enduring freedom and stuff like that so like by the time I get to law school I, I was working like when I was in high school I've always had a job like law school was literally the first time in my life that I was just like a student really and so, and so for me my my legs is kicking up my kicked up like these people around here stressing out I'm like what you stressing <laughs> out because all you gotta do is go to school <laughs> like like what is the issue so so I kind of um you know I I actually uh kind of in, enjoyed it um you know to be to be quite honest I mean I, I kind of enjoyed that yeah uh-oh okay so Henry what was your tell me about your first uh law clerk position um, let me see. My my first law clerk position actually, I worked for the uh, Indiana Court of Appeals. It was a, a judge uh, Carr. I was clerking for him, and uh, in that position, basically, what I was doing is there were cases that were being determined in criminal and civil court in Indianapolis, and if they got appealed up far enough, they would get to ours. And we were on the uh, Indiana Court of Appeals for the entire state. And so basically what I was doing is I would read both of the arguments uh, that both of the attorneys made. 
I would uh, come up with, you know, the way that I felt that the law, the way that I felt that the law um, uh, should come down of, of which argument we should, which argument we should go with. I would prepare a draft and I would go sit with the judge and I would share the judge with my opinion and, and he would modify it, you know, either way that it, that he wanted to have it modified. So, um, you know, that, that turned out to be a great, great experience. Uh, you know, my legal research and, and writing, you know, it, it grow, it grew by, by leaps and bounds, but I almost pulled uh, a story though, you know, about, uh, sometimes things that we think are, bad for us how they could turn out to be you know good um the i almost didn't have that job because i was going to take another job at a very very large law firm in indianapolis like one of the one of the larger law firms it was like the dream everyone was trying to get this job and indianapolis i guess it's called the circle city because they have an expressway and it's just like a circle man i messed around <laughs> and went down there, called myself leaving. I was calling myself leaving 45 minutes early. I got on that loop and I messed around. And I ended up being late to that appointment. And, and the way that they had it, that interview, the way that they had it, it was already going to be an uphill battle, you know, to even get the job. But I came and, and uh, you know, the way it was scheduled, it was an interview. This first 15 minutes with two partners, the second 15 minutes with two partners. And so, like, I missed the entire interview with two partners. So it was like, literally almost no chance I was going to get the job and I was destroyed and crushed with that but then something happened and uh you know the Indiana Court of Appeals came through and ended up being better and then more so than that is everyone who got that clerkship is like for the first time in like you know decades like they did not hire all the people you know usually yeah. so so I would have basically given my entire summer working there and then I would have not had a, you know, I would not have had a job and, and it, you know, it would not have looked, it wouldn't have looked good on my resume. So, so me getting caught on that circle and missing that exit and having to go around all the way again, uh, that really, that really helped me out. And I think this is a time to, I think this might've been before GPS. So I think, you know, so. <laughs> Got it. Wow. So, you know, everything happens for, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Wow. So how did you end up back in Memphis, Henry? Um, I ended up, uh, so I graduated from law school and I got, um, you know, uh, my, I end up, you know, I was blessed to get into a very good law school, Indiana you know, university at times, one of the best law schools in the, uh, you know, in the country, definitely, uh, you know, one of the public, best public law schools in the nation. So um, I had a, a, a couple opportunities. Now, when I first came into law school, like you were, they were giving out jobs like candy, like every lawyer could get a job. Uh, but, but during law school um, is when like we had the economic crash of like 2007 or, or, or whenever that was, 2008. And so uh, jobs became extremely uh, scarce. So what I did, like I told my wife is like, I figure I'm gonna put out 500 applications. If I, if I do 500, I, I figured if I do 500 resume, complete like resume, writing sample, you know, transcript, everything. I figured that if I, if I could send out 500, I could probably get I figured I could probably get 50 interviews if I sent out 500 uh, considerations. Yeah, I'll I, I probably get like 10% interviews. And then, you know, I, I'll probably get, you know, maybe 20% of those end up being a second interview. And then I would get a few job offers. And so it ended up working like that. Mm -hmm. And so we had, we had opportunities. I could have been in Indianapolis, Kansas City, Columbus, Ohio. Um, but prior to that, my wife and I kind of sat down and made a list of what cities is our dream city that we want to go to. And both of our, you know, both of us, you know, Memphis was, was number one on that list. So when I got an opportunity in Memphis, it was pretty much a no brainer. Okay. So you're back in Memphis and, you know, tell us about building the Henry Reeves law firm, the Reeves law firm. I know that was such a daunting task to do. Mm -hmm. 
um, that was, I mean, I wish I could take a lot of uh, credit for it, but it's really a situation of just like God just closing every door that yeah. I just really, I, I really didn't have an option. So I was doing the uh, insurance defense side and I knew I didn't want to be on the defense. You know, I, I wanted to help. I wanted to help my people. And so uh, when I switched, when I tried to go into the plaintiff side, when I, I left there, I'm trying to go into the plaintiff side. Like I interviewed with the Cochran firm. They said no. I interviewed with Morgan and Morgan. Like they said no. Uh, and the, the last place that I went to was uh, Corey B. Trust. NST sat down with Corey B. Trust and, and Aaron uh, Saharovich, you know, told him my story. And, hey, man, this is what I could, you know, bring to the table. And, uh, you know, I could do this. I can do that. And they kind of looked at me, uh, you know, and they, and the, uh, you know, Aaron Saharovich was like, well, if you can do all that, what do you need us for? Wow. And I think that a lot of it was, it was kind of like a situation of like, like they thought I was lying or, or maybe, I mean, my, my feeling, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I felt like, you know, all this stuff that I'm saying that I can do and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't know if they truly, I don't know if they truly bought it. But once he said like, what do you need us for? I was like, my mind, like, man, you're right. And that's the last interview I ever did. So mm -hmm. I never interviewed for another law firm after that. And then, uh, you know, once the focus was like, all right, well, no one's going to save you. You're going to have to do it yourself. Uh, I was able to kind of redirect my my energy into that, to the firm. And it just, man, it just started jumping. Wow. So why personal injury, Henry? What made you focus uh, on that? I think that we're underrepresented, underrepresented as far as uh, African-American attorneys that, that do uh, personal injury. And so... Um, I also, that's the kind of the experience that I got at my law firm is I was exposed to that personal injury side from the defense perspective of, you know, what insurance companies do and how they do it. So, so I felt that I had like a, I had a real advantage because I, you know, got to see that other side for a while. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's just, I, I like it. I mean, I feel honestly, like I, I feel so, you know, uh, uh, blessed and happy because all I do all day is get people money. All I do is get my people money. I feel like I'm just giving out reparations all day. And so, <laughs> I'm, which is I'm, warranted, huh? <laughs> like, like I, hey, hey, I love it. I love it because, uh, you know, I see the changes that that you know people can make when they have this money. I see generational curses uh, being broken. I see, you know, young women and men, you know, starting business. Everyone is not just blowing, you know, their money that they're getting. Like a lot of these people are building, um, you know, they're, they're starting, they're sowing the seeds to build empires yeah. and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, every day that I could get people money, like I'm, man, it's, it's, I love it. Wow. Now, if I was to walk into the Henry Reeves law firm, tell me, like, what am I going to see about your employees, about the setup when I walk in here? Because, baby, I didn't been in quite a few accidents and have visited some of the people that you've mentioned that you interviewed with. Right. And, you know, it was kind of like almost like a what is the word I'm trying to say? Like, you know how you get them in and you get them out, you get them in and you get them out. They got a script ready, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You in and you out. And I know they're getting a big cut of my money anyway. Mm -hmm. Tell me mm -hmm. about the Reeves Law Firm experience. What makes I mean, you all different? I mean, uh, one of the things that, that make it different, just kind of at its, at its core is, um, like, like there's a lot of people who, so personal injury just as a business, and especially in Memphis, 80 to 85 percent of clientele is black and that's for and that's for and that's for quite a few reasons there's some socioeconomic indicators to that and it's also you know i believe that the insurance companies you know treat black people differently and black people are kind of forced to you know go out and 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 seek uh you know they're, they're forced out to to seek a, an attorney because you know people are not going to do them right on their own and so one thing that is, is kind of different to me that is that's kind of different that like I didn't have any I didn't have anything to do with it. It's just like the way I could relate to my clientele. I relate to my clientele, you know, uh, differently. Like it's not just um, you know the people are not just a not just a number. It's like man, if I see this person, I'm dealing with him. Like man, he remind me of my cousin. Hey, she remind me of my grandma. She remind me of my auntie. 
Like she remind me, you know, so it's like a lot of them, they're my people, you know, they're related to me. I went to school with them, a lot of them. And so I kind of put that on my, you know, I, I put that pressure on my staff and I really am, I really am, I feel that it's life or death, you know, to, in an in a essence with who is my staff because of the fact that like, I didn't make money and then go run off and go live somewhere else. Like I still live in, in Whitehaven. You still can see me at the Kroger's on Shelby Drive and uh you know and, and elvis presley you know me and my family you know we still you know moving around and walking around so one thing is you know as we grow and we have volume like i don't want to have clients out here who felt that they were done wrong or felt that they were done you know dirty and if someone uh i'm in the grocery line i might not necessarily know them you know by face but they know me and and so um you know it's a matter of you know, as a matter of love and as a matter of safety, I'm hard on my people about how you how you treat these people and, you know, don't mess with don't mess with people's money and, uh, you know, really respect people. Our core values at the Reeves Law Firm, the first core value is that we want to be loved, uh, you know, by our community and our clients. Uh, our core values are loved by our community and our clients, respected by our peers and feared by our opposition. So the first core value of being, you know, loved by our clients is like anyone who's been in a relationship and got dogs, you know, you can't make no one love you. Like, you know, you know, you know that you can't do that. But a philosophy that I have is that we try to control what we control. And so I can't control if someone ultimately loves us, but I can control the actions. I can make sure that the actions that we take, you know, are in accordance to achieving that end result, you know, for the people to love us. So that means being empathetic. That means, you know, fighting uh, for them. That means, uh, you know, letting them know that they're in their, in, uh, you know, you're in their corner and giving them clear and effective communication and trying your best, you know, to make them feel valued. And you're not going to be successful, you know, every time. I mean, you're not going to make everybody, you know, happy. And it's going to be people who are not going to like you regardless. But, uh, you know, we, we control what we control. And, you know, in, in my heart, in the, in the heart of my heart, like, I want to take care of these people. Amen. Amen. Now, you know, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I put it on the news, on, on local television. I see your commercial. Um, I see you on the billboards. You know, I ain't been out in the snow recently, but <laughs> I'm going on the highway or in the, even in the neighborhoods, I see your billboards. And you have been very intentional, Henry, about your messaging um let us be your voice tell me about the importance of marketing in this law game um and with i guess uh the fact that you are in memphis and we are it, the commercials are just inundated with uh morgan and morgan you know they they go hard but i'm so happy to see you amongst these people in this marketing game, tell me why it's so important for you to be intentional about your messaging and for us to see you on that TV. Well, it's it, it really goes to um, the area of law that I'm in. So personal injury, like if you if you notice when you see commercials, the majority of commercials that you see, if it's an attorney, like they're marketing for personal injury. Like yeah. they're not necessarily, you're not seeing a whole bunch of, you know, criminal attorney commercials, you know, and, and it's a limited amount of like family law commercials and stuff like that. So for personal injury, it's an extremely uh, competitive, it's a extremely, uh, it's an extremely competitive sector. Um, you know, the, the cases and the margins are, are, are relatively high. You know, you are probably, um, you know, you're talking a, a larger amount of, uh, you're talking about larger dollars uh, when you're talking about personal injury versus a lot of these other places. So so advertising is extremely important. In addition to that, it's important that we advertise because they have so much competition here in Memphis. And they also have attorneys and law firms and chiropractors who are doing unethical things. Like, you know, there's people who are getting busted all the time for, uh, you know, buying police reports and they're mm -hmm. buying these police reports. So if you ever get into a wreck, and if you ever get into a wreck in Shelby County, the next week, the next two weeks, you're going to get like 100 calls because people go out right. and they buy those police reports. Mm. And so so you're you're competing against that. Like there's been laws and there's been things that have been passed to prevent that, but it still happens. And so people who go to those solicitors and they get taken, they end up getting hurt because 
insurance companies know like which of these physical therapy providers are doing soliciting and stuff like that. And they have something that's called a special investigation unit. And so people get solicited and it's mostly my people who are getting solicited by these places and they're going over there and then, you know, they're, they're walking away with a hundred dollars and $200, you know, after doing all their treating, uh, because the insurance company is like, nah, like you're, you're at the wrong place. Hmm. So, uh, you know, to get to your uh, question, like when you're facing all those things, like advertising and people knowing like what you do, like it's very important. And I had to specifically advertise because a lot of my people, you know, we have a habit of, uh, you know, even when they knew I was a lawyer, like people around me. Now, if something happened and, and uh, my neighbor's chickens and got into my yard, I need you to help me sue because my neighbor's chickens got into my yard and, and, and laid an egg on my back porch. They want to call me for that. And then someone get into a catastrophic 18-wheeler accident, they call it Morgan & Morgan or NST. Right. You know, so so I just let them know. <laughs> so as my, far as my advertising, like, this is what we do. Like, we focus on that personal injury. You do have options, you know, who you can go to and who you can use. And, and so advertising is pretty much the way to get out there. And if you want to do it legally and you want to do it ethically, like, you're going to have to play, you're going to have to pay the game, and you're going to have to advertise. Yeah. Wow. And you know what? We don't see a lot of the theatrics that we see in those other commercials on your on your specific commercials for reasons. I, I feel it's disrespectful. I feel it's yeah. I feel it's for me, like I see that stuff, I feel like it's condescending. Because I'm like, man, okay, well, this is a professional service. And look how you're marketing to us. So basically you're saying that you feel that's how you need to talk to black people. So if someone is in, if someone has, their wife is laid up in the med, their wife is laid up in the med because she got hit by a drunk driver. Like, so you think the solution for that is that you should rap to her. Is that you should have a, that you should have a, 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 a cowboy or an astronaut or, you know, what, whatever it is, is like, they to me, they go that hard. seems, that seems, that seems, I don't feel that that they would market to uh, different people like that. Exactly. Like, 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 I don't, I don't feel that they would do that. So I feel, so one, I feel this, I feel that that's disrespectful. When I stepped out into the marketing, like, uh, we, you know, with the Reeves Law Firm, uh, I ain't saying it's fair, but I knew from the beginning, this is our 10th year, you know, we've been doing this. The thing about it, and you know, with your podcast and you're an entrepreneur as well, is, uh, you know, when you're a black business, you don't just represent yourself. Mm-hmm. Like you represent like black businesses. Definitely. Like, like if your podcast, like if you're interviewing a lot of these people and you know, we come and you you're at your podcast and you're not, you know, prepared or you're rude or you're like this, like they're not gonna say a verbally effective podcast is 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 not professional. They're gonna be like, Man, black podcasters. Mm-hmm. I ain't gonna do no more. I ain't gonna First do no thing more. Black. I ain't gonna do it. Like I, I need to go to this white podcast. They on time. They got all my. They got all the stuff ready. The light right. is right. I feel you. So 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 that's so you know with that in mind. Like I've always been. Like I'm not. Like I I know that you're not ever gonna stop people from saying the bad stuff. Like it's it's always gonna be. You know it's always gonna be. You know that stuff on you know, people are going to say, but I, I do feel that I have a duty and responsibility to, you know, try to the best of my ability to make my folks proud of me. Definitely. And Henry, let me ask you this. Do you feel that you have gained the respect from your competitors at this point in your career? Or do you even? Uh, nah, I think, I think, I think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I mean, I, I care about, I care about, you know, the respect of, uh, you know, of, of my competitors and, and my peers. It's our second uh, core value. I mean, because uh, I might want to take a superstar from them. So I need to have my name need to be good. And, uh, you know, my, my, my name needs to be good there. But it's like one of those places that I, and, but as far as getting respect, like, I got that years ago. Because yeah. anything like like one thing that you men lie, women lie, numbers don't lie, and like and they know that I'm a trial lawyer and I've gone to trial and I've got verdicts that ain't no one on commercials TV has has got you know has gone and stood in front of that jury and stood up and uh, you know presented that case and went into that courtroom with my client and came out you know victorious. So I got that respect a long time ago. Mm-hmm. 
So I told you, I ain't gonna drop no names, but I told you about, I, I listed earlier in the uh, interview about three places that I went, you know, to interview. And so I say that uh, after I interviewed with them, it's probably a couple of years I done got my firm up running. Like they circled back and came to me, want to be partners and want to have a partnership and, you know, and merge and stuff like that. But at that point, I was like, oh, I'm good now. But I'm good. I'm on, I'm on my, I'm on my way, sir. I'm yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I definitely feel, I definitely feel that we got, uh, I definitely feel that we got the respect and that they, uh, you know, and, and that we are actually, we actually do have a, a piece of the market share here in Memphis. Definitely. Definitely. I see it. I, I, I wish you nothing but the best too in your law firm. I know if I, if I leave my uh, driveway right now and get a personal injury, I know who I'm calling. I look, I just saw your commercial on the TV too. It just went by. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today, Henry. But what I do want to know lastly is, um, what does Henry Reeves like to do outside of the law firm? Tell us about like a typical weekend that you're having with your family. Like, what do you like to do to maybe wind down? That was tell us something we don't know about you, Mr. Reeves. Man, I hate to, man, I, I, I feel that I'm a workaholic. But one thing that has kind of uh, happened with, uh, you know, the pandemic with everything, uh, you know, slowing down. Man, I just like playing with my kids. Yeah. You know, I, I just want to stay. I just want to stay. I just want to stay in. I just want to stay out the way. I like playing with my kids. Uh, let's see what game we've been playing all through this snow. All through this snow, there's this game. If you, if you have some kids, if you I like do. Uno, it's mm -hmm. a game. It's called Exploding Kittens. Exploding That's a kittens. Exploding Kittens. That's a card game. So you know we. You know, we play that, you know, with the family. They got a, a game that's called Throw Throw Burrito, which is right. also a pretty cool game. And so that's that's why I'm at my kids are at a at an age, you know, my my younger ones at uh you know, nine and ten and uh you know, twelve. I'm just trying to really just enjoy these last few yeah. little years of innocence. Cause they ain't gonna be thinking about dad in a minute. They're gonna be like, drop me off at my friend's house. Look, Give me my I cell phone. Know. I'm in my room. I already so, know. <laughs> so I, I want to spend, I like spending as much time as I can uh, uh, with my kids. I'm a season ticket holder to the Memphis Grizzlies. So I, I definitely, you know, enjoy the, uh, you know, Grizzlies excited to see what Taylor Jenkins is doing, you know, out there with, uh, you know, John Moran and Jaron Jackson and, and, and Dylan Brooks. So I've been a long time Memphis Grizzlies fan. Like I was a, a Grizzlies fan when we was, you know, like, man, I'm talking about before the Rudy Gay, OJ Mayo days, you know, like, man, I've been a fan, like, I'm talking about, I had my back up in the wall, you know, to the grindhouse, where I'm sitting with my back to the wall, and now, you know, we get to sit on the floor, so that journey has been, that journey has been great. Wow, and they've still been having games, right, during this pandemic, but it's like a different capacity, right? Yeah, they've been having they've been having games. I don't think that they've had people like Memphis is, you know, our arts it's a limited amount of people. It's mostly people involved with the uh, you know, team. They have have strict guidelines. So I like that. And then like the pandemic, man, is like you asked me this question, we've been locked in for a year. It made me forget what did I used to like to do? Cause we ain't doing nothing now but, but social distancing and you know and and, and staying safe. Yes. And that has, has, you know, just what you mentioned, social distancing and say, um, staying safe, has that affected your business in any kind of way? Like with your communication to your clients? I mean, the, the, uh, so when this pandemic, uh, I mean, we were looking at the pandemic, like when it was kind of overseas and, uh, you know, when it moved to the United States and we had kind of been like looking at it and monitoring it and, and we had prepared our, uh, you know, remote backup plan for us to go, you know, fully remote. So we've been remote since March. So, so if you came to my office, it's, it's pretty much no one there. And because of what we do, uh, you know, the majority of the work we're able to do, we're easily able to, to do it remote. You know, we're still able to communicate with our clients, communicate with the adjusters and whatnot. Um, we have, uh, you know, the, the biggest hit that it's probably had on us, not necessarily been with the signing of, of people or, or working the cases from the pre-litigation phase, it's the fact that the trials, there's been no trials for like maybe a year, you know, wow. so, 
So if, if we talk about having no trials, you know, ultimately that is, there is an effect on it because at the end of the day, um, these insurance companies understand that there's no trials going. So like that, that trial is what, that's the only thing that can make someone do something. Like we can negotiate all day, but when it gets to the point of when we want to make them do something, it has to be through a trial. And so not having trials for a year, that is not, you know, that's not been, uh, that's not been good, uh, you know, for us or, or for our clients on that aspect. But, um, you know, every law firm is facing the same thing. And, um, you know, we're, we're working very, very, very hard to try to make sure that our clients don't feel that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Every, everyone has been impacted in different ways across the board, across industries. Now tell me about your unity campaign. I know you got stuff to do today, but I want to know about your unity. No, I got you. I got you. I got you. I mean, uh, the, the unity campaign, uh, you know, that we, that we have going like it's, it, it speaks on, it speaks on several, you know, levels. It's it's unity as a country, um, you know. This this country is a it's a country of immigrants, man. Like everyone is from somewhere else, you know. It's not like it's not like we're in Hungary and everyone, you know, seven generations, like all their family was born in Budapest. So everyone is, you know, most people, you know, are 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 from somewhere else. So like unity um, for a, a country that's named the United States of America is pretty much a security uh, concern. And, and absent that, we're vulnerable to the rest of the world. And I think we have to have that. We also talking about unity when we're talking about, um, shoot, Memphis as a city. It's like, if, if we're looking at, you know, Memphis, Shelby County around here, uh, so many people are focused on differences. They had differences in Washington, D.C. and the White House. But man, what does that have to do with us over here? Like we got to still live, we got to still live with each other. Now, if you've been going to, you've been going to work at FedEx on the line next to these, uh, you know, these black people for uh, for ten years, and so Trump is president. And now you want to put Trump bumper stickers and have, you know, rebel flags and stuff like that. Like, how does that, how does that help us? So that, uh, you know, from from that aspect, um, you know, we feel that we we need unity. But I also feel that as, as Black people, period, I think that, like, one of the biggest things, uh, you know, for us to, to do anything that we want to accomplish, for us to do anything, I think it's going to take unity. I think that there is, uh, that we've been shown uh, with the pandemic, like the pandemic, so much magic, you know, happened, you know, during the pandemic and the civil rights movement that, that took place in a pandemic. There was lots of people who felt that our Barack Obama was president. So boom, we've accomplished it. Like we've we've reached, so, you know, our peak. Yeah, we're we're in a post-racial. And the thing that with the the George Floyd and and the, the and the rise of, of Trump and, and stuff like that is uh any thoughts that we're in a post-racial society, like that was, you know, that's destroyed. So so now they now you know exactly, you know, you kind of know exactly what we're in. And so um, I thought I felt that that was great in helping to unite black people because a lot of that stuff showed you like, man, you black and we in this and your kids are black and we in this together. And, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves is like, do we want our children to be having a march <laughs> for please stop killing us, please. Yeah. Our, our lives matter. Like we literally are, we literally is the only people <laughs> talking about like our lives matter. Like, and, right. and people are fighting us if we say that, that, that our lives matter. Like, like that is a, that's a, that's a political thing. So I, I think that um, I was, because of Trump and because he is a, a blatant white supremacist, in my opinion, and uh, he emboldened white supremacy and people were acting different, you know, when Trump was in, in office, I was, you know, I was 100%, hey, let's get them out. Let's move them on. Like, it's, it's not good for our, our country. But the the place where I would stop where, where we need unity is, if we look at the Democrats, 
And I 100, man, I voted Democrat, like, my entire life. My my grandmother and grandfather, like, they was part of the Mississippi Democratic uh, uh, Freedom Party in, in 64 and stuff like that. So, you know, they've gone to conferences in D.C. and everything. So lots of, you know, uh, uh, Democrats. But I think what this has kind of shown me is if we look at what happened in this election, um, Black people, the, it's, and it's literally... And it's not hyperbole. Like black people literally saved America from, from fascism. Uh, so it's like, it's the black people in, in Milwaukee, the black people in Detroit, the black people in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Atlanta are, are literally the only reason why like Trump did not win. Like like mm-hmm. them coming out, they came in and they, they delivered. Out, they delivered it, and, and I and I truly believe, and most people truly believe, that President Trump was such an incompetent, uh, you know, uh, d- disgrace of a president that had we gone another four years with Trump, like we don't know if we would have survived as a nation. So with that being said, and and. And, uh, you know, and I'm looking at facts. You look at the way that he handled the pandemic, how he lied about it. Like, he made a lot of bad, bad plays. Cool. So, so um, you know, so we delivered to America, or to the Democratic Party, we delivered to them a president. We delivered to them a, a Senate and a House. Like, like Black people gave it to our reparations. Or uh, they try to say something about like uh, if anyone tries to say anything about reparations, like you know the the Democrats are not taking that seriously. Mm-hmm. The Democrats, like we delivered them, we gave it to them at like a a ninety uh, percent clip. And so uh, the biggest thing people want to say, well, what's the problem with the black people? Let's do this this type of uh, program and this type of program and, and let's do this and it's the parent homes and it's not this and it's not that. Well, look, a lot of those things might be the issue, but I'm going to tell you what the thing is. It's money and resources. Money. Point blank period. I live in the Haven, but guess what? In my neighborhood, man, we don't worry about killing and all that type of stuff because people don't have to kill because you can keep someone from stealing off of your plate if they got food on their own plate. So if we can, uh, you know, eliminate the economic disparity within the school systems, within the healthcare system, within access to capital, so black people can build and start black businesses, so they can have homes and stuff like that, like that, those things will fix, you know, those things will fix the 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 issue that that is happening with African Americans. Like African Americans are not inherently inferior. Are they're not, you know, it's not like they're they're dumber or they're, you know, worse people. It's it's simply it's the money. And what really, really kind of upset me is with this pandemic is like, man, okay, well, this country, you've been talking about you broke all this time. I'm too broke to I'm too broke to fix the black issue. I'm too broke to fix the black issue. But then all of a sudden, man, pandemic, America's suffering. We we suffering for like one month. Okay, you go trillions of dollars that just came out of somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, to fix that. But black people been in a pandemic for 400 years. Oh, like we didn't, we didn't, we, we've lost, like, man, it's been more black people have died, you know, uh, you know, you, it, it's more black people have died because of the results of uh, systematic racism and slavery and stuff like that than, than died in the pandemic. And so the situation that we're in is, you have the Republicans who are the Republicans who, who want to say, lift yourself up by your bootstrap. Systematic racism doesn't exist. And black people are in the situation they're in because they're inferior. It's not because America did anything. And at the end of the day, they could sugarcoat it however you want to. But, it, but if you're saying that black people are in a position that they're in because of, because of their own, because of themselves, then you are saying without a doubt, that black people are inferior. Mm-hmm. So so that's where that's where the Republicans are. Now the liberals and the Democrats, okay, they want to acknowledge it. Like they will acknowledge, okay, there is systematic racism. And they don't want to see us get killed. Like they don't want to see us, you know, like that George Floyd stuff it gets outrageous. But a lot of times what the liberals and what the Democrats want to do is, is like, I know that you're hungry, but let me spoon feed you out my hand. Mm-hmm. Huh. Huh. Take this program. Here. 
here, have a little bit of this. Yeah. Eat a little bit of that. And, and what I'm saying is, I just want to be in a position where uh, I just want I just want our people to be in a position where uh, you know we can rely on ourselves. And there are some actions that, that we can do, like the fact that we did all this stuff for Democrats, and they still not talking about what I want to hear. Everything that they, everything that I'm hearing that they're coming with symbolism. Man, hey, we saying we need some food over here. We need money in these Shelby County schools. Uh, hey, y'all, uh, we, we need some money. Guess what they say? Well, we're going to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. Yeah, what? That's the focus. That's the focus. Man, we're we, we trying to eat. We're trying to eat. Hey, we need, uh, hey, we have, uh, we have a whole bunch of black businesses that are having problems getting capital. Uh, I seen uh, they, they had an article that just came out not too long ago. And it's saying that the number one indicator of a successful um, entrepreneur venture, uh, the number one indicator is having resources. <laughs> so it's like the family that you come from. Like when you go, when you start your podcast, can you go to your daddy and be like, hey, I need, I don't want to work. I'm going to focus on this podcast. I need you to spot me 50 stacks. Right. Nah. Like, 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 do you have that? And then if you don't have that access to capital, you don't have that. So that's, that's real stuff. And what they want to say is, okay, well, so we're saying we need access to capital. They're saying, well, well, let's make lift every every voice and sing. Let's make it the national uh, hymnal or something like this symbolic stuff. Like, man, we don't need don't that symbolism. <laughs> we don't need the we don't need the symbolism. Men lie, women lie, numbers don't lie. Help us close this economic gap. And if we utilize unity as a as a people, if we utilize unity, we can take some steps to kind of put ourselves in the best position. If we weaponize democracy, if we use, we're one of the only, we're some of the only people who, who like, we don't expect, like, like what do we expect for our vote? All these people come out and say, vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. Hey, I promise you, man, I'm gonna do some good stuff for you when I get in there. Man, that's finessing. Man, I need to know off top. Oh, you want to vote, what, is you, what are you gonna do? You know, how are you going to do it? And that's how most people, and that's how most lobbyists, that's how most other groups approach. That's how, how, how most groups, that's how most groups, uh, you know, uh, approach politics. But we as a people, a lot of times, like we put these leaders in positions and we have these leaders in place, but, you know, and the agenda is kind of, you know, and the, the agenda is secondary. So oh. what we talk about, when we talk about unity, you know, uh, amongst, um, amongst black people, you know, we look at, um, you know, Malcolm X, the ballot out of the bullet is we're still kind of in the same situation is that we do have, you know, a, a we do have um, common issues that, that we want to overcome that, that the majority of black people face. And, and guess what? And if you bless enough and you done made it and I, that don't involve me. I live in, uh, you know, blanky blank and I, I do this, I do that. Well, how about your cousins? Mm -hmm. How about your, how about your cousins, kids? How about your brother? How about your how about your brother now? Okay, you done made it. Your kid, your kid go to Lausanne. But how about how about your cousin now? Mm. You know, how about your wife? How about your wife's cousin? How about your wife's, you know, niece and nephew? You know, so so unity is just thinking about us, you know, all together, you know, thinking about us all together as a whole, us uniting, us removing uh, you know, those things that could kind of separate us so we can focus on a bigger issue. You know, some of the things that, that uh, if, if black people are going to overcome, and, and I'm going to tell you, it's, it's going to ultimately, it's going to be, I, I really don't have confidence that anyone else is going to fix it for us other than us. Have we been begging and asking and begging and begging and asking and folks and lived and died and we've been begging and begging and asking. They pinch us off a little piece, pinch us off a little piece, pinch us off a little piece. So when we talk about unity, one of the thing is, is, is black people, um, we have such a, a huge thing to overcome. Like we can't afford to be divided. So that means um, if you're, you know, the division, we need unity, you know, as opposed to division between, you know, the poor, are the, the the hood black people and the elite blacks like nah we need unity we need to be on the you know we need to be on the same page the christian blacks and the muslim blacks nah we need to be on the same page the uh you know it, man gay straight man like like whatever it is like we have um you know we have a a, a huge goal and if we can unite 
and we can focus on the things, the enemies that we have in common, I think that we can be successful. But it's gonna really, it's gonna only really be through unity. And wouldn't it be beautiful if um, the city of Memphis, like where they murdered the king, where they murdered the king, wouldn't it be beautiful if like out of that blood soaked ground of Memphis, you know, kind of arose, like here goes the answer. Like, wouldn't it be beautiful if, like, Memphis showed the world, if Memphis showed America, like, this is how you do it. And and I'm speaking from a place of, and when I speak of it, like, I'm speaking of a place of they did that for me. Like, my clientele is 99% Black. So it's mm-hmm. Black unity that took me, took my kids off of WIC, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, and, and put us in a position, you know, where we could hire people, you know, where we're one of the largest uh, you know, Black-owned personal injury law firms in America. Like, that, this unity and stuff that I, I'm preaching of supporting, like, Black people, like, they did it for me. Yeah. Like, my life is completely, like, I'm living, I am a living example of, like, what happens, um, you know, when Black people, you know, when they unify. And so, unity, uh, unity. I want, I want to build, I want to build a thousand more like huge like black businesses uh that are able to um you know hire people and give people opportunity and you can put your nephew on and you can make a call and your kid could get in and get an interview and can get a summer internship and we don't have to go in in 2021 and be begging folks can i please wear my hair natural <laughs> can i wear can i wear right. can i wear locks can i wear can I wear a porn roll? <laughs> please, sir. Please, sir. What can I? Like, man, no. Nah, nah, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to have my kids go through that. Uh, other people are not trying to do that. And and unity, uh, man, let's get out here. Let's build some businesses. Let's build some empires, a nation within a nation. Yes. Look, I, 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 it seems like you might get into politics soon, uh, Mr. Man. Man. What you think? What you think about a political man. future? Man, what I what I think what what black people need, like we got politicians and we have politicians, we have preachers. I think we need businesses. I think we need industries. I think we need you know infrastructure. I think they need that, you know, as much or or you know or, or more than than anything else that they have. So, I mean, I, I I'm never gonna say you know never you know for anything like that. But you know, right now, man, my focus is on my clients and you know growing and building this business. I mean, I'm still hungry. I mean, I'm not satisfied. I'm I'm happy uh, you know, for where we've, you know, came and I enjoying that. But it's I mean, shoot, I just turned 40. So I mean it's in my opinion, I feel that it's a long way to, uh, that I still have to go. So I don't want to get focused and looking at other things and I drop the you. ball here. I got you. Well, look, uh, you sure can talk. You could probably start a podcast under Ivy Multimedia. Let me know if you're interested in doing uh, a podcast. Hey, hey, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to give you your time's worth. I'm trying to give you your time work. Yes, we have definitely enjoyed you. I need you to let the verbally effective audience know how they can get in touch with and keep up with Henry Reeves the third. Okay, look, you can find us at beyourvoice.com. You can give us a call at 901-352-0333. We focus on uh, personal injury as well as bankruptcy. So uh, if you know someone who's been seriously injured, if you know uh, know, anyone who's considering bankruptcy, make sure that you just give us a call and we will take care of you uh, uh, to the fullest. One thing that you know for sure is that uh, the owner, and I am the owner, because this thing black people will try to say is, oh, he's just a face. He just out here advertising for the billboards. There's some white folks on that place. What? I'm going to tell you, 100%. 100%. Reeve <laughs> Law Firm, I own that. Yeah. I own it. Yes. Black owned. This ain't no, you know, and I can understand why people feel like that because it's a lot of law firms that do that. But we are, you know, uh, uh, you know, 100 percent black owned. So if you are a loved one have been injured, you know, give us a call. 901-352-0333. Find us at beyourvoice.com and we're going to take care of you. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Henry. I really enjoyed listening to your journey today. I mean, you have been through so much and you have been resilient in your journey and you are all about creating generational wealth and putting facts out there, the truth out there 
um, building black wealth and I'm with it. I'm with it. If you ever need my help on anything, you just let me know, Henry. I truly appreciate you and your story today on the Verbally Effective Podcast. And I just wish you the best of luck in everything that you do, because I know you're going to be successful in it. Thank you, Henry Reeves. Hey, hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank your podcast. And thank you for, for what you're doing of, uh, you know, shining spotlight, like you are helping to build these businesses, you're helping to, um, you know, break generational curses. And I just, you know, if, if they ain't told you, I want to tell you, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Thank you. You're welcome.